0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. One of the things you said that stuck with me is that we teach our kids what to do in case of a fire, uh, but they're much more likely to to experience some kind of abuse than they are to have a fire in the house. Uh, And so we should be trying to educate them uh, about what to do with their bodies. I thought that was very compelling because one in four Girls and one in six boys is staggering.
1: Again, this is because it's such a difficult subject um, to talk about. It's the reason why I wanted to create a resource that was going to be useful um, and enable more conversation. We teach kids how to cross the street safely, you know, how to make sure um, they are safe in the event of a fire. But statistically, they're much more likely to be sexually abused than to be in a house fire. Um, So this is a safety book.
0: On today's episode of Yang Speaks, we have the greatest guest we've ever had. Evelyn Yang joins Yang Speaks, wife of Andrew Yang, talks about her new book on sexual assault awareness for kids and also talks about what it's like to be married to Andrew Yang. You're not going to want to miss this. They are an amazing couple and two amazing human beings that complement each other well. You're going to love it. Evelyn Yang joins Yang Speaks right now. It is my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks the greatest guest of all time, the most important, the love of my life, Evelyn Yang. Welcome to the podcast, Evelyn. Thanks for coming.
1: Hello, Mr. Yang.
0: <laughs> Hello, Mrs. Yang. We are a couple of rooms away from each other, and yet I <laughs> it feels so official because you have your own background.
1: I'm very proud of this background. I made this background for Damien Zoom school. You know, he had the chicest background of all his classmates.
0: Thanks to you. And people should know that Evelyn has also been upgrading my Zoom backgrounds uh, for uh, for months. So anything good that's happened, it was probably Evelyn, as is true in most of my life. Uh, I feel like people who listen to this podcast know you already. When folks met you, it was when you first started uh, campaigning for... um, well, was campaigning with me as I was running for president. I was going to say campaigning for president. <laughs> uh and I uh, I remember distinctly where you were so surprised that people were so happy to see you when we were out out and about. And I was like, "Oh yeah, they've been they've been excited to see you for quite some time."
1: Oh yeah, it was a it was kind of a shock actually. You know, it was um mostly at home minding the kids while you were on the trail for uh a good, at least half of it, I think. And then the first time I came out with you on the trail, it was close to my birthday. And I think I had, I don't know how large that crowd was, like maybe a thousand people singing happy birthday to me. That was just such a trip. Um, And seeing all the energy and how much love there was for you. I was like, wow, Andrew was telling the (laughs) truth. He wasn't, he wasn't overstating this. (laughs)
0: Well, there was a lot of love for you, baby. And I have no idea how I campaigned without you after you showed up. Because when you started campaigning, it was so much better. It was a lot, a lot, a lot like, like, worlds better. better? Um, I feel like everyone in the team felt that, too. You know, it was, it was a, a special time. Um, and then when we got the kids on the trail, too, it was also awesome. Uh, when the, we got them on the bus and, and whatnot. They still have a very, very special place in their hearts for Iowa. I think they see it as a winter wonderland.
1: Totally. They're the only kids here, I think, that have been to Iowa so many times.
0: A lot of people ask you this, and I suppose I'll ask you uh, you as well. Uh, how did you feel about my decision when I came to you saying, hey, how about my running for president? <laughs> <laughs> Back in the day. Uh, and I guess you and I started having that conversation uh, in like 2017 after Trump won.
1: So many people ask us that question. And I think most people think or they regard it as something that happened overnight. And the truth is, it was a progression. Right. Um, And we were having these conversations around what was happening to our country. Like, how did Donald Trump get elected? And I think that question literally kept you up at night. Like you were losing sleep and you were wrestling with it and trying to make sense of it and in the way that you do you know you started digging into the numbers and the research and then you discovered you know um, automation and how donald trump won the election
0: yeah it did take place over months it's true i remember vividly seeing uh the facts and figures around the automation of manufacturing jobs in the midwest that mapped almost district by district to the the voters that Trump needed to win and did win. And I thought, wow, someone needs to explain this to people and then actually propose real solutions. Uh, And do you remember the first time I brought universal basic income home to you? (laughs) Because I actually am not sure when I did bring that home to you.
1: I think you started By reading a book. So did you meet Andy Stern first or did you read his book first?
0: I definitely read his book first.
1: Right. So it it seemed like you read his book first. And then as you were reading his book, you, I think we had some conversations as you were reading his book and, um, and you were really excited about it. And then you were really excited when you met him. And I think that's actually the first time you might have come back and said, I need to popularize this idea. And the way to do that is to run for president.
0: Uh, So the book that that Evelyn's talking about is Raising the Floor by Andy Stern. He wrote this book in 2015, and it was so impactful and powerful for me because he's one of the greatest labor leaders of our time. And so when technologists like Eric Brynjolfsson or Martin Ford say, hey, technology is going to eat the jobs. And you're looking at it saying like, okay, you would think that because you're a technologist and you're going to see things from the technologist's point of view. But then when one of the great labor leaders of the country says technology is going to eat the jobs, you're like, wait a minute, you would not have a vested interest in this point of view at all, quite the opposite. So if you come to this conclusion, people really ought to listen. Uh, And it makes sense that when I read his book and I was talking to you excitedly about it, Evelyn, you were like, oh, universal basic income. And one of the reasons why we both became so excited about the presidential run was we came together on universal basic income and felt like, "Okay, the world really needs this.
1: Totally. And what it would mean in terms of eradicating poverty, um, what it would mean to uh, caregivers around the country. It made so much sense to me that I thought, okay, if you go out and promote this idea, somebody else will pick it up.
0: Oh yeah, that's what you said.
1: I was like, this, there's no way that this idea won't become the new Medicare for all. And then you can pass on that torch and come home and be normal again.
0: Yes. And when I got out there, I remember coming back to you and saying, I'm not sure anyone else is going to pick this up in the way that, that you were. Uh, imagining, though I did get a number of candidates to sign on to it, but they weren't the major candidates. I got Marianne Williamson and Tulsi and um, others uh, to commit to some version of universal basic income. I was after... I didn't think I was ever going to get Joe. But I I was after Bernie, really, uh, in in a big way. And it was always mystifying, as you know, baby, that I was like...
1: But I mean, look at it. It just basically took like a year longer than you thought.
0: (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, uh, due to the circumstances. But now we're seeing cash relief in various versions. The child poverty tax credit that is getting started this summer, I don't think people are talking about it enough. It's hundreds of dollars a month for millions of families. I mean, it's literally going to... uh, reduce poverty for uh, almost half the families that are in poverty right now that have kids, uh, it's really astonishing. And the fact that you and I might've had something to do with that uh, is is like the greatest thing ever.
1: It's the greatest, and it's just the beginning, right? How many U.S. cities now are piloting UBI?
0: Dozens, happily.
1: And I don't think people know this, but when I tell people, uh, they're very surprised to hear that when you first started running for president, you didn't even have, your name and it was, I think you called it like UBI 2020. That's what it was on your, on the website. That was on, that was what was on your business card. Like your name wasn't even in there. It wasn't Yang 2020, it was UBI 2020. And then people started being like, who's behind this? (laughs) And then that's when you changed your name.
0: Yeah, also UBI didn't really have the kind of currency or impact that you kind of hoped. It's like UBI what? Like, you know, UTI, (laughs) it was not. So we went with Yang. Which, uh, and then uh, the rest is history. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing, you don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your Internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. You shared your story of being sexually assaulted uh, by your doctor, which obviously you and I, you know, shared years earlier with the world. Late in the campaign, it was late twenty twenty, uh, and that was such like a, a massive decision on your part. I think that's when really most people got to know you, uh, and I, I was obviously a part. Of some of that process, but can you talk people through what that process was like for you and how you actually arrived at uh, the decision to stand in front of the world or, or share your experiences with so many people?
1: I never imagined having um, the kind of platform that we did. And this had been a burden on me, just a secret that I had been carrying uh, for many years ever since um, I was pregnant with Christopher. And, um, you know, being on the trail was a very, very empowering experience on many levels. First, there were so many women actually who were sharing their stories of harassment, of assault um, with me in particular. And I remember thinking, "Wow, you guys are so brave," um, and I have my own story to share. Um, but I was too scared, you know, to do it. But I felt empowered by them, empowered by the love and support um, that came to us just from you know the campaign. And I also felt this incredible obligation. Um, to use the platform that I had at that moment um, and try to support other other women and other survivors. So I do feel like it was the moment that um, enabled, you know, my coming forward. It was rough, though. I, I remember wrestling with it for a long time. And I think, you know, the week leading up to my CNN interview, I probably lost 10 pounds. <laughs> um, but I'm so glad I did that. And I absolutely did not anticipate um, so many other women coming forward about the same doctor, right? Like dozens and dozens of women. I think over he was practicing for over 20 years. Thinking about how many women he abused during the course of his career is just chilling. And to know that I helped that many other women um, come forward about something where, like me, they probably thought they were completely alone. Maybe it was something that they did. Um, yeah, that means, I mean, that that's everything.
0: I do remember the days leading up to your interview, and uh, I just wanted to be supportive. I, I just wanted to say whatever you want to do. Um, though I, I too saw the love and support you were getting on the trail, even before you came out with the uh, story about what happened with Dr. Haddon. And and you were getting all these messages about different issues that women were facing. But after your interview, it it was 10 or 20 times that where everywhere we went, women would just come to you, sometimes in tears, uh, talking about their own experiences. Uh, It was overwhelming. The support that you got, but also the level of pain uh, and struggle that so many women faced. I mean, I I was a witness to people coming to you so many times. And uh, I was so proud of you, baby. Uh, I mean, I, I was somewhat overwhelmed, too, by the level of attention that your story received. Rightfully so. But I felt like everyone saw that interview uh, I got text messages from dozens of our friends, and and this actually hit me, and I'm sure you did too, where dozens of of our friends texted me and, and said, "I'm so sorry, I never knew," and then uh, it, uh, it dawned on me. I was like, "Oh yeah, like now our friends would know uh, that that this had happened," and I thought, "Well, like I've known, and, and uh, like I struggled with it for years with like the anger and pain and guilt uh, on on my part." Um, but then after you shared it, uh, so many other people knew and it, and it touched so many people so for so profoundly that I feel like you couldn't help, but feel like it was uh, a tremendous thing to do. Cause I feel like you set a lot of people free. I feel like you liberated a lot of women.
1: Well, I certainly did so for, um, other survivors of this doctor, um, that I know. And, and I was kind of smiling when you, when you said, um, know people coming up to us because I remember very distinctly that after my interview you know we would do events and you know you would have your own selfie line and then I would have my own and it was beautiful but also incredibly um telling of how just many of us are walking around with this trauma and um a lot of tears and a lot of support for one another it was that was something that I was not anticipating at all. I didn't know that coming forward or sharing a story of myself would mean that other people would want to share with me to that level. And um, and I actually feel so grateful for that experience because it's it's even more um, I think healing for me to channel some of that trauma and and be able to help other people deal with theirs.
0: Uh, catharsis, I think, is the word. Like, it's cathartic.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what we need more of, right? And it's the reason why we encourage survivors to share their stories because it's a burden off them, and it also helps other people because it just opens the door to uh, more people sharing. You know, I work with, um, you know, Rain. They're the largest anti-sexual assault um, network in the uh, in the country. And they tell me, so they run a 24-7 hotline uh, where you can um, talk to someone, train confidentially um, any time of day. And they say that after Me Too, every, all of the work that we've been doing over these past years, it, it's not that the calls decline. The calls just increase. Because the more people come forward, the more other people want to come forward.
0: You referenced that a number of women came forward about Dr. Haddon. Uh, I know it was dozens of women. It was over 40. And that had a real impact on his treatment and that case. Uh, the, the federal government ended up uh, investigating him as a result of all of these women coming forward. That, that must have been incredibly gratifying for you.
1: It was. It was the first time I felt like what he did was actually taken seriously. And so I'm very, very grateful that he was actually arrested and he's being investigated um, for abusing minors under his care. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I think they called him at the press conference a predator in a white coat. And I had not heard him up until that time. uh, ever described that way. And it illustrated to me just how they finally understood um, his MO, right? That this was calculated. You know, he would prey on pregnant women like me, who um, in my first pregnancy was very unaware of how these visits were supposed to go. And then also young women for their first visits. Now he's being described as maybe one of the most prolific um, predators in the state. And he was very, very close to getting away with it.
0: And he he didn't, thanks to you and so many other women who came forward, uh, I despise this man and his existence. Uh, And I I know I speak for so many people when uh, I say thank you, Evelyn, uh, for helping get him on the way to being behind bars which is where he belongs. Uh, He's hurt and traumatized so many people and abused their trust in a really violative manner. I mean you go to a doctor and you expect to be treated and and taken care of and and he uh, attacked and abused people. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So now to something uh, a little bit more uh, current and and positive. Uh, how did this book come about? Uh, I know that, that you were at least thinking about it, but then the, the, I think someone reached out to you.
1: I had this book in me pretty much as soon as I started talking about what happened with me with the doctor. It was because I was looking for a way to explain what happened to me, to our kids and also um, protect them from something that I knew was quite prevalent. I did not realize the extent of it. You know, it's one in four girls and one in six boys will be sexually abused before age 18. That's a lot.
0: That, that's astoundingly high, yes.
1: There are over 40 million Americans right now um, who have experienced sexual abuse. And it's not something we talk about, right? It's so taboo. It's so uncomfortable. From what I was seeing, there wasn't a like a consumer resource for for this, like a, a book for parents or educators or, or families. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor or a clinician. And... This book is not a clinical book. Um, usually, the subject matter usually comes across in a more clinical way, which I had a hard time with. This book is written in the point of view of a survivor me, and it 's the book that I wanted to read to our kids the The difficulty was in illustrating this book, and i if you remember. We, you know, I don't know if you remember, we we talked about, like, what are we going to use to illustrate this? Like, are we going to use, like, animals? Like, what kind of animals? Bunnies, bears? <laughs> and I think it was very um, lucky that I discovered a kid's book about, and they're experts at handling heavy topics um, like sexual abuse and uh, racism and... Addiction, big topics, but distilling it down to a, um, a conversation starter almost for kids um, and their and their grownups, and it's just to get just plant the seeds. You know, no matter how heavy the subject, I feel like all of their books are actually very positive and affirming and accessible. So we're just planting those seeds of awareness and compassion and empathy, um, it's really what we need. You know, I really believe that we have to start young with these subjects. It's too late when they're, you know, conditioned by their peers, by the media, all these things that get in the way where it's hard to break through. We, we have to start very young so that um, they understand their impact on others.
0: One of the things you said that stuck with me is that we teach our kids what to do in case of a fire Um, but they're much more likely to to experience some kind of abuse than they are to have a fire in the house. Uh, And so we should be trying to educate them uh, about what to do with their bodies. I thought that was very compelling because one in four girls and one in six boys is staggering.
1: Yeah. um, Again, this is because it's such a difficult subject um, to talk about. It's the reason why I wanted to create a resource that was going to be useful. Um, and enable more conversation. We teach kids how to cross the street safely, you know, how to make sure um, they are safe in the event of a fire. But statistically, they're much more likely to be sexually abused than to be in a house fire. Um, So this is a safety book, you know, first and foremost. It teaches kids the signs of sexual abuse and the importance of reporting it should it happen. And that's everything, you know, just telling kids over and over again that um, the most important thing you can possibly do is to tell someone. Don't be afraid to tell anyone.
0: I, I love this book. Um, I was, again, I mean, they, they do it so intelligently and tastefully. I mean, it's a lot of word art.
1: So back to the point about how we illustrate this book. What's awesome about the series is that it's all word art. So it's just words, but it's still really emotive and, um, right.
0: Yes. Your private parts are private.
1: (laughs) And, um, anyway, you get the point. It's just, it's just words and the words speak for themselves.
0: Yeah. It's really wonderful. And you're donating all proceeds from the book to rain. And we're trying to get copies into primary schools, uh, around the country. Is that right?
1: Right, so I am donating all royalties to Rain, and um, you know I have a goal of getting this into you know the hands of um, guidance counselors and therapists um, and educators. I don't know if I told you this, but I was having a conversation with um, the guidance counselor at Damien School back when I was still working on it, we were talking, talking, talking. And then he said, what's the title of the book again? And I said, oh, it's a kid's book about sexual abuse. And he said, a kid's book about, I love a kid's book about. And uh, he's like, I have all of their books um, and I use them with my kids and they're so effective. And we, we can get through such tough topics. Um, but the kids feel really good about it and they take away so much. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm so, so um, grateful that, you know, I found a series for this book to live in. It's such a good series. I recommend all of their titles. Um, it's on Oprah's favorite list for a reason. I'm just really proud to, be able to have this subject now part of that, you know, that broader conversation of, you know, educating our kids early, um, teaching them these important issues that we don't usually approach with them until later. And I and I think that's a mistake.
0: Well, you're helping to change it. And I'm so thrilled that that guidance counselor uh, loves these books as much as you and I do. Net, you've been talking to organizations and activists about ways that you can help uh, protect kids from abuse. Uh, outs- even in addition to this book and uh, your advocacy of Rain, which is a tremendous organization, um, I think you you just had a conversation with uh, the Biden Foundation to that effect.
1: Yeah, I actually participated in a training with them yesterday. Uh, they, uh, their organization helps prevent um, child abuse in general, all kinds of child abuse. And it's wonderful. Um, the training, what I learned so much. One of the things that's really disturbing is the, the new predator, the new sexual predator. It's not the same predator that you might imagine, you know, uh, riding around in like a minivan looking for kids in playgrounds to pick up. The new frontier is online gaming. No. Yes. <laughs> and if you can imagine um for them it's like a paradise because these are fish in a barrel to them, right? These young kids um over I, I want to 39% of online gamers are over 35 years old. So they're not all kids. And they're there and they're picking their prey. They're literally in kids' bedrooms because they're gaming together and there are so these multiplayer online games um, and you know, they, they are on teams together and parents are not aware. One of the most important things to do is to establish safety guidelines early on and um, to revisit those guidelines regularly.
0: Sorry gamers, I know most of you are awesome and like, just there for the, the uh, enjoyment of, of the game. Um, so you, if you have an older guy who, um, is a predator, then is their goal then to try and find some young boy typically, because I feel like boys play these games much more than girls and then get together with them in person. Is that like a progression?
1: So 46% of gamers right now are, are girls. Um, so the girls are definitely catching up to the boys, but yeah, they, for them, it's a they're very patient. That's one thing that I've learned about sexual predators. They're very patient. Um, you know, they start very benignly. They will add, um, you know, maybe give you gifts. If you, you know, how obsessed our kids now are with Bro, Roblox and Robux, um, they might give you a gift and earn your trust that way and then help you, you know, um, acquire. Things and items that um, are desirable to you, and then um, you know, try to move the relationship um, from online offline. But even in an online relationship, you know, there's something um, that I learned yesterday. It's called sextortion, and it's it, it is what you imagine it to be, which is you know they extort you for photos, it, it, and it, it could start out innocent, just like take photos of um, either your home or your outfit, and then it just gets progressively worse. And it's really, really important for our grown-ups um, and parents to be vigilant.
0: Wow, it's very dark. When you say it out loud, it makes perfect sense. Um, but it's not the kind of thing that most parents think about.
1: It's not. And I would say, I'm saying it's, it's new. It's new for us. It's new for most parents. Um, but again, what's the same is that Any kind of abuse, there's stigma, there's shame, there's guilt. And these are the things that I cover in my book. These are the things that don't change. And again, the single most important thing that kids can ever do in this situation is to tell someone. That's how the abuse stops. And that's how we can prevent abuse from happening to other kids, because we also know that predators have multiple victims. The reporting levels are, are just terrible. They're dismal. They're, 16% of sex torsion cases are actually reported to the police.
0: I, I'm so glad that we're sharing this with people because a lot of people, particularly parents hearing this, will be like, wow, I hadn't thought about this. And, you know, your kids online interacting with people, you assume it's benign. You assume they're having fun. But uh, there's some darkness uh, lurking uh, behind the fun sometimes. Oh, baby, I am so proud of you. I love you so much. And, and seeing you grow over this last number of months into this amazing advocate for women, for children, for families with special needs, it's been one of the joys of my life. I mean, certainly you and I both know that like neither of us really could have foreseen so many steps in this journey that, that we've been sharing. Uh, but but seeing you greeted on the trail with so much love and uh, warmth and enthusiasm, and then seeing the impact you've had on so many women through sharing your story, uh, and then now having you uh, fight for families, uh, not just our family. I mean, anytime someone thanks me when I'm uh, out in the world, I, I say thank you, like thank my wife uh, for making any of it possible. But uh, I'm just so proud of you and uh, I'm um, so grateful to, to you every single day. And I think there are a lot of other people listening to this or watching this that um, that share my, my gratitude.
1: Aw, thank you. <laughs> um, I'm very grateful too. You know that I get spiritual sometimes and I think about how we never imagined, neither of us, that we would be in a place to be able to impact um, people's lives in such a way. And you know, when you started running for president, I I was very much content in my role as supporting you um, in your mission to you know change the way people. Um, thought about the economy and the future and also to eradicate poverty. I mean, that was enough. That's plenty for me. But I I really never imagined that I would be in a position to use my own personal experiences um, to help people in almost a completely different way. The things that we experience happen for a reason. And wherever we are in in any given moment, we can only do the The best we can with it, Um, and just trust that it's, you know, for good.
0: (laughs) Well, it it certainly is for good in in your case, and I try and make it for good in my case. Um, Thank you for everything you do for our family and for families everywhere, Evelyn. Uh, I love you, and I'm sure a lot of more people, uh, you know, love you uh, out there listening to this and watching this as well. Thank you for coming on. You're the best guest ever. I'm not just saying that because you're. My wife and the love of my life.
1: Most downloaded episode ever. <laughs> I love you.
0: Anytime you want to come on, baby. We could just make this the, the uh, Andrew and Evelyn Yang Speaks podcast. And like the, this is just like every week it'll be like, what are Andrew and Evelyn talking about this week? Wow, that, that actually, I mean, heck, I'd enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs>